This is Opinionated, a roundtable debate that fascinates with each new thought-provoking guest, the place to convey strong ideas and, at times, the casual controversy. Join Features Editor Ben Schiller and reporters Anna Batakova and Danny Nelson as they push the conversation further with their own criticisms and reactions to the latest Bitcoin and crypto news from around the world. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. Hi, everybody. I'm Ben Schiller. This is Opinionated. I'm joined by uh, co-host Danny Nelson. Hi, Danny. Hello. And Anna Bedakova. Hi, Anna. Hi, everyone. Great. So we're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to talk about the recent news over the summer and just do a little recap about where we are with crypto markets and with crypto generally. Just get some opinions from the group about recent events. Obviously, the big news this summer was about regulatory happenings in D.C., Washington, was big news. We also saw a continuing drumbeat of CBDC announcements. So for instance, Nigeria came out this week saying it was going to issue a currency in October, which is big news. And I want to talk about that in a minute. We saw the Bitcoin price reestablish itself near 50,000. And we obviously saw NFTs uh, really take off in a number of different divergent sort of ways not only in uh, the art and collectible market, which is where it started, but increasingly in, in, in DeFi and, and other aspects of, of crypto. And that's very, very hot at the moment. I just wanted to start with a proposition about CBDCs, because it seems to me that there's sort of this continuing arrogance amongst central bankers that uh, once they start issuing state currencies to compete with cryptocurrencies, that they will blow the market away. To me, at least, uh, this sounds very resonant of the discussion a few years ago amongst uh, consultancies, particularly, and enterprise blockchains. This idea that it wasn't about crypto, it wasn't about Bitcoin, it was really about you know, permissioned ledgers being built by uh, big consultancies. You know, frankly, I think there's pretty wide agreement on this. Enterprise blockchain has been a complete failure, really. These systems are not getting a lot of traction, they're not getting a lot of play from companies that really want to collaborate and don't really see the benefit to collaborative open source technology. So I think we're going to see a similar thing with, with central banks and, and digital currencies that there's just so much more action in the open source blockchain space, particularly on Ethereum and its successive competitors can ever be in a system built by a uh, central bank. So I'm just going to put that out there to the group that CBDCs are the new enterprise blockchain. What do you think? First of all, one of our summer guests, Paul Brody, would totally disagree with you that enterprise blockchains have been a failure. I think he would say that the game is only starting right now. You know, I don't believe anybody in the central banking world still cherish that hope that once they have their own CBDC, the citizens of their country will abandon crypto and just forget about that and all flock to the CBDC. Another thing is that for me, it has never been completely clear why the, the governments want to do that. All these things about like unbanked and the high fees of uh, bank transfers. When you're a central bank, this all is easily solvable by policies and investment in the legacy infrastructure and whatever. I think in the case of China, the reasoning is quite clear. It's going to be a finance surveillance tool 
which will help the Chinese authorities to just, you know, append the system of electronic surveillance that they have already built in the country. Now it just will have this another component. And for everyone else is like, oh my God, China is doing that. Let's not be behind China. Let's also do something. Like, for example, in the case of Russia, if the digital ruble will ever be implemented, which they like issued a bunch of research papers and, and did some discussions about, but it's still not clear if it will be duplicating the existing system of electronic money transfers, which honestly works quite well. Like there is no issue with that. Like people can send money from one bank account to another with zero fee in a minute of a second, and you wouldn't even understand why you need some other construction on top of that. What I'm interested here in is uh, the the activity that Nigeria is doing with uh, its partner in the private sector. This company called Bit Incorporated. Often, the big central banks like China hasn't been speaking, at least to my knowledge, about who in the private sector, if there even is much of a private sector in China, they're using their project. But Bit is one of the only companies out there today that has appeared to be working with central banks on CBDCs. Now, I think it's worth noting that Bit's previous CBDC projects were really limited to the Caribbean. And economies in the Caribbean on those little islands with not so big populations, that's a very different field to deploy a a CBDC and then Nigeria, which is Africa's largest economy. So I'm really interested to see how this is all going to play out there. And I would also just to return for a second to Paul Brody, you know, of course he would say that enterprise blockchain is alive and well. He's a consultant. Half of his clients are- He he doesn't say that though. He actually comes from the permissionless world. He comes from the world of Ethereum development. And actually, he's not supportive of the idea of enterprise blockchain. He's not. He thinks his his colleagues in the consultancies, I don't think he would put it this way, but that they've sold a bunch of goods to to companies on on the belief that that's the way it's going to go, that that everything's going to be permissioned in, in Ethereum and the permissionlessness of that. To amend my statement and make a more general statement about consultancies then, I do believe that all consultancies are in the business of uh, selling companies a convenient narrative. I think we can agree to that generally. So I apologize to Mr. Brody if he is, in fact, but, a fan but, of the permissionless ecosystem. But, but, but Paul Brody is not in the, in the business of selling technology no. to companies that's not going to work and not, not going to improve their business in, in, in the long term. And that's what I'm trying to say before is like, I think these permission ledgers that these consultancies were trying to put out might have appeared like sensible business planning, but they've been superseded by the larger kind of innovation tsunami that's coming out of the open source space. And I think it's hard to argue with that. And I think that's why you see companies or you know, investors like Andreessen Horowitz, for instance, they're not investing in enterprise blockchain. They're investing in things like DAOs and NFTs and successive networks to, to Ethereum. They're not interested in this sort of bastardized concepts of uh, enterprise blockchain and uh, CBDCs. Well, well, with CBDCs, do we even know, like from one CBDC project to the next, if they even involve a permissioned blockchain? Like blockchain is just, you know, a fancy way of managing a database, right? So the value of the blockchain isn't in its having multiple computers reach a consensus to uh, record a history of, of transactions. It's that it's a distributed system that is permissionless. And so I think we all find more value on that side of things than a permission system. I don't know how many central banks are actually working with blockchain at all to create 
their CBDCs. I, it appears that Nigeria is because their partner, or I would guess that Nigeria is because their partner, the private sector, is a blockchain company. And I think that China's made statements that would indicate that its CBDC uses a blockchain backend. But beyond that, I mean, I don't know how many of these central bank tokens are actually going to be relying on a blockchain permissioned or not. And if it is a blockchain, it certainly will be permissioned. Just like the open source blockchains and the enterprise blockchains, the, the CBDCs and the cryptocurrencies are just two very separate worlds. The, they are separate for a good reason, be, because the big corporations and nation states alike, they want to control things. They want the system they operate be totally under their control. And the prerequisite for, for the centralized system is that you can't control it from one place. So you can imitate blockchain in your enterprise architecture, or you can like imitate some features of a cryptocurrency running a centralized digital currency, but it still will be a totally different animal, which will just exist in parallel with this uh, you know, unruly, unregulated, decentralized crypto world. And also, I think that we might, as you know, a crypto space, overstate the interest that central banks have in you know, squashing Bitcoin with their CBDCs. That might be a secondary desire of them. And in fact, and, and I wouldn't give too much credit to central bankers who say explicitly that it has nothing to do with crypto. But I think that at this point, the central banks are really trying to play catch up with the other central banks that are moving faster. Like Nigeria's central bank says in their statement earlier this week on the CBDC project that there's a quote, unmistakable global trend and 85% of central banks are considering adopting digital currencies. So I don't know how much of this is really driven by crypto so much as by FOMO over crypto as FOMO over all our other central bank friends are digitizing and we don't want to get left behind. But I, I think, you know, a lot of these announcements, like frankly, Nigeria's announcement, I mean, I'm not completely convinced that these projects will actually see the light of day. I think this is about central bankers sort of competing with one another with uh, press releases, just like these companies a couple of years ago in the enterprise blockchain space kind of basically competed on, on press releases and never really uh, brought their projects to fruition. And I think if you speak to some... Um, cryptographers and security experts, they are absolutely scared witless of the idea of a central bank trying to issue a currency over the internet. I mean, it's just a big honeypot that's just waiting to be attacked by hackers. And if you think the, the hacks on these DeFi protocols are serious, I mean, wait until uh, someone takes on the Federal Reserve. I mean, it's going to be a cataclysm. At least with decentralized systems, you distribute the points of failure the, the, the points of, that hackers can target. I, I just find these central banks, I, I don't really understand why they're doing it. I think it's just about like keeping up with the Joneses and keeping up with their friends in, in, other, in other central banks. Well, well, thankfully, when you have a, a system in which there is, there's centralized control, if and when there's some hacking being done or some stolen, as we've seen with Tether, which uh, issues its own cryptocurrency stablecoin, they're able to go in there and blacklist that money and make it uh, so that it can't move around. Now, of course, there are the, the issues around privacy are still very real, but I think that Tether has shown us a pretty strong example of the power that centralized issuance has when you're trying to police a monetary system online. 
And Tether did freeze a significant amount of money when the Poly network was hacked. As you remember, the hacker was in a very interesting dialogue with, with the Poly network team, and he ended up sending all the money he stole or they stole back, but the tethers were frozen by Tether, which made it more difficult to return them, which raises this whole range of questions about centralization. But we have a more interesting question to discuss because yesterday, an interesting story involving Coindesk itself and Tether happens. Uh, and it's very plain and simple. So Tether has been in this many years court process with the New York Attorney General investigating it and that has been settled for a fine of 18 and a half million of dollars earlier this year. There is a bunch of documents that has been accumulated over that process and Coindesk wanted to know about these documents and, you know, everything related to the composition of Tether reserves that it disclosed to, you know, the Office of Attorney General and maybe didn't disclose to the public when it explained what was the part of its reserves. And there is a bunch of interesting questions about Tether reserves. For example, we know that over a half of its treasury is some commercial paper, but nobody ever said what kind of papers are that. Some people suspect they are papers of Chinese companies, which kind of gives a totally different color to the whole idea of uh, Tethers being backed one by one by dollars, by the, by the US dollars. So what happened? Our colleague Nikhilesh De, who's doing a titanic work on the crypto <laughs> regulation, uh, and you should guys all follow him on Twitter and read all his stories. Uh, and his newsletter. Yeah, in his newsletter. Subscribe to that. So Nick filed a Freedom of Information quest, I think, with the Office of Attorney General, asking about, you know, basically what Tether told you about their reserves. And Tether appealed to that move, basically asking to prevent Coindesk from getting this information. And the reasoning was that if the New York Attorney General releases this information, that would, quote, tilt the competing playing field against Tether, meaning that the competitors of Tether, probably Circle or Gemini, who are also issuing their stable coins, will know Tether's financial strategies, compliance measures and documentation, and customer data. I'm citing Tether's reasoning again here. There was quite a bit of discussion on Twitter yesterday, and I was surprised to see our summer guest, Jameson Lobb, a prominent uh, Bitcoin developer and uh, a great influencer in the field, actually saying that, no, it's not a good thing for journalists to obtain this information about Tether. You know, Tether is a company. They have a right for privacy, you know, that they have a right to keep their information to themselves. And that was very surprising for me because, um, you know, privacy is a cool thing, but we have all these, you know, disclosure rules and uh, regulations for a reason, because when you are a big company, it's good that your customers know what exactly you are doing. I think it's interesting, you know, because there is a kind of tension between the privacy rights of companies and the projected aims of some of these networks, including Tether, which is by far and away the most important stable coin and, and really has kind of 
an enormous source of liquidity in, in the crypto market. We, we couldn't really exist without it. And there's a tension between a kind of privacy right on the one hand and the public role in these networks, which would presuppose a degree of, of transparency that we, we might require of them. So, you know, when, when I see a company like Tether fighting tooth and nail against a journalism outfit like Coindesk to stop us looking into their reserves, which is a source of continuing controversy, then it doesn't make you any less suspicious about what's really going on with that project. Exactly. It makes you even more suspicious when the company is so persistent in, you know, in its unwillingness to, to disclose information about itself. I think at the end of the day, we all just want to know really what comprises that infamous pie chart that Tether exactly. put out. Exactly. Like, you, you know, after all these years of the, the, the legal battles and the controversy and the, the no coroners who would uh, say, oh, it's completely unbacked or this or that, or all the bombast. At the end of the day, what we were given was a pie chart right. uh, exactly. and not even a very detailed pie chart. So, you know, we don't know what's in those records. Well, we, we, we know what might be in those records from a um, bureaucratic standpoint, but we don't actually know what they will comprise. And hopefully we'll be able to obtain them and shed some light on it because I think it's for the space to thrive, there needs to be a level of transparency. I mean, the idea of transparency is so baked into the idea of blockchain technology. It's this system that is distributed around the world and it works because everyone knows what has happened on it. And has so, equal access to that. Yeah, has equal access. Now, of course, Tether is not running a decentralized system. It's a, Tether is very much centralized and then the entity behind it is at the controls. Uh, but given, as Ben, was what you said, how important uh, Tether as the crypto asset is to uh, liquidity and activity in the space, it's extremely important that th we have a level of transparency that at least uh, approaches the extent that we can see in other aspects of the space, just so we can fully understand that the actors that are facilitating trading activity in crypto are true to their word. Exactly. I mean, I think the two issues here, I mean, first of all, the historical record on Tether's reserves is important. And I think the company wants to make an argument effectively that we should only look at their statements on their reserves now rather than their statements and, you know, the picture previously. And I think, you know, I don't really know how, how they can answer that. And, and, and it's one of our previous guests has said, you know, that there have been times in the past with Tether when it's clearly been the case that they haven't had the reserves that they claim to have. Secondly, just to take this forward a little bit, I wonder up to now, Tether hasn't really been harmed by these continuing controversies over its reserves. I mean, all the time that people have been worrying about this, you know, its, its issuance has been going higher and higher and Tether has become like the preeminent stablecoin on the market. I think the question going forward is, you know, will there be a sort of transparency race and will Circle and USDC, for instance, start to gain market share because it is seen as more transparent and more in keeping with sort of norms around what we might expect of a, of a publicly facing company? Well, to the point of Tether, I think it is quite possible that, you know, the more information that they disclose, the more power they give their competitors to compete with them better. This is how it works, you know. The more your competitors know about you, the more steps they can uh, take to make your life harder or front run you on some things or whatever. Here is the question, 
do we care that much about Tether's well-being or we care about the, the whole industry being transparent, kind of understandable and, and clear to everyone so that people know what exactly they're getting in when they're getting into crypto? I, I think too long have we been living with, you know, this little dirty secret of crypto that, you know, yeah. everyone feels like something might be there and tether that is not completely right, but that's fine because, you know, the tethers are printed, everybody are using them, nothing bad is happening, numbers go up. And why do you even need to know that, right? Like, yeah, you deal with it on your own risk, but maybe we will see the day where this little secret will, will be no more. And, I, and, you know, I, I think it will be a good day for crypto. Whatever direction the price goes on the long term, the more we know, the, the better for the industry, I guess. Yeah, completely. I mean, I think we need to stop uh, judging crypto on, on its prices and on its activity in the market and start judging yeah. it on these more fundamental principles of uh, transparency and privacy and, and the other claims that, it, that it's making. So... Um, it's not about Tether, it's about the principle of having fair access to information in a publicly facing market. Absolutely. And then, you know, with that idea of, you know, approaching that, this market on the fundamentals, not just the price, I think a good place to round out today's discussion of the summer is uh, to ask the group here, you know, what is Bitcoin? Like, you know, I asked that in the most lighthearted way possible because one of my favorite, I guess, uh, Twitter memes of the summer has been uh, Udi Wertheimer, my favorite troll, his uh, statement that Bitcoin is digital real estate. He never leaves any explanation of that fact. But I think it's worth, you know, having a, a quick discussion among you guys. Like, what is Bitcoin? Is it, is it digital real estate? And if so, why? And are you buying? The market is hot. Udi Wertheimer is everybody's favorite troll, I mean, mine too. <laughs> but what do you make of, of this statement, Daniel? Do you understand what he meant? Like, if w once you have Bitcoin, you're never going to move it? <laughs> well, I mean, you can move a house if you have a big enough tractor trailer, but I guess you'd have to move a server farm for Bitcoin. I think that the whole thing becomes a little more convoluted, though, especially this summer with the rise or the resurgence of interest in you know, the metaverse which is another Udi, Udiism. But in the metaverse, you actually can have digital real estate. On Decentraland, people can go around and buy plots of digital land for money, for mana. The plots of land on this decentralized application that really is buggy, doesn't work well, and you know is subject to Ethereum network transaction fees, <laughs> experience that personally, isn't so ideal, but there is literal digital real estate there. Bitcoin does not grant you the title to a home uh, in that land, this, there is still that idea that it is you're purchasing something in the digital world. Yeah. Isn't this a bit like uh, there's a hundred condos for sale in a fancy street in Manhattan and you're going to get one of them and in the same way you're going to get a piece of the 21 million Bitcoin that are going to be issued. Is, is, that, is that the idea? Is that actually about that you own and use Bitcoin if you're running your own full node? In this sense, the concept of digital real estate kind of makes sense because if we side with the people who believe that to really use the Bitcoin network, you should be running your own node, 
then these nodes are pretty stationary at this point. You know, they, they should be always connected to the internet by a wire. So that thing is just sitting in a certain place and isn't moving anywhere with you like your phone does. So maybe in this sense, like if, if you really go full decentralized, full, full like cypherpunk, full Bitcoin hardcore aficionado, then your Bitcoin is like a real estate that just sits there and you're not supposed to spend it because maybe you'll buy a yacht with it someday. In this sense, the narrative kind of makes sense to me. I'm not sure if we should go that deep into Udi's memes. <laughs> <laughs> I, think the, I think the deeper you go, the more fun it becomes, though. Also true. I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm more optimistic about this concept of real estate in what we used to call cyberspace. And it used to be a ridiculous idea that anything on the internet was one, scarce, two, protected by property rights, and, and three, sort of something you can actually own that somebody can't have. And I think, you know, the, the great innovation, one of the great innovations of Bitcoin, obviously, is the scarcity thing. And now with, with NFTs, as our guest last week was saying, we have this kind of property rights concept around digital assets that we never had before. So I think that is genuine innovation. And I think it's easy to kind of troll the troll here. I do find there's some kind of truth there that maybe was not so true before, perhaps. So, Danny, you were trying to buy some digital real estate in Decentraland? Well, I've, I've since decided that my real estate investments will be uh, restricted to the meat space that we all reside in in, the, in our day-to-day -day lives. I don't think I'm going to be buying any, any Decentraland plots anytime soon. I, I was about to make a joke that you were about to, to buy a house for your NFT ducks in the Decentraland. I, I'm not sure how traumatic those memories are. I, I slaughtered the ducks. They were of no use to me. Oh my you, god. You killed the ducks? Like no, you burned the token? I, I burned I burned the serve no, I did not. Uh, I still I, <laughs> I, I guess I actually could burn the token. I I don't know how I would go about that. I'll have you know that I still have my duck. He is looking quackalicious and he is still a terrible investment opportunity. And I will say, you know, we will we will never give you guys investment advice here, although I will give you investment advice here and I will say do not invest in digital ducks. I think that's okay to say. I think that's a good thing to say. I think we're going to wrap this up now. All right. This has been Opinionated. It was Danny Nelson and that was Anna Bedakova and I'm Ben Schiller. You can follow all the great work of the team and everyone else on Coindesk.com, which has been recently completely redesigned and a number of new elements on there. So please check it out. You can look at our Twitter feeds, check out the great articles we've been doing recently. Thanks very much and we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to Opinionated with Ben Schiller, Anna Badakova, and Danny Nelson. Today's show is produced, announced, and edited by Michelle Musso, with theme music by Ellison. We would love to hear from you. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. <laughs>